Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight, and it's the final countdown. I mean, less than 24 hours from now, the January 6th committee's last public hearing, at least for now... And it's a prime time, too. And there's certainly a lot of anticipation building on what new revelations could be coming. And so how does the panel plan to make its case tomorrow in this sort of series finale? We're on number eight, mind you. We just got another clue. Committee member Jamie Raskin just confirming to CNN that the committee plans on showing outtakes from a video that Donald Trump recorded the day after the riots on January 7th. Now, the whole thing is only about three minutes long of what we saw But it took an hour to shoot, according to the Washington Post. And even then, it still needed to be edited. Watch for when the camera position changes. Now Congress has certified the results. A new administration will be inaugurated on January 20th. My focus now turns to ensuring a smooth, orderly, and seamless transition of power. This moment calls for healing and reconciliation. 2020 has been a challenging time for our people. A menacing pandemic has upended the lives of our citizens. So how was the other 57 minutes spent? What's in those outtakes? And why was it so hard for him to condemn the violence? Now, those outtakes, we're told, are going to be a part of the committee's case that Donald Trump abandoned his duties as president, neglecting his own to, his, to stop his own supporters from attacking the U.S. Capitol for more than three hours, mind you. And tonight, we have a former White House communications director in that administration who very publicly pleaded with the ex-president during the insurrection to call off the mob. Condemn this now, she begged on Twitter. You're the only one they will listen to for our country. We actually have a trio of Trump world and committee insiders this evening to help us walk through exactly what to expect including someone who led initial questioning of two key witnesses we're going to be hearing from tomorrow. Now, remember, this is a congressional investigation, of course, and it could go on for many more months. Committee members are promising their probe is not winding down, only ramping up with so much new information coming in. It seems almost daily. But remember when it ends, whenever that is, it ends with a report, not a verdict. It'll have a conclusion, not criminal charges with some sort of answer of who did what, when, why, what you should do about it in a court of law. Because that power lies with the Justice Department. And there's news on that front apparently tonight as well. Now, there's still a huge question mark hovering over the DOJ's ongoing investigation. Namely, will Attorney General Merrick Garland ever charge Donald Trump with a crime? Does he have the evidence to do so, to indict, let alone convict? And he was pressed about it today. Listen to his answer. No person is above the law in this country. Nothing stops us. No, I don't know how to, maybe I'll say that again. No person is above the law in this country. I can't say it any more clearly than that. He'll be asked again many more times, rest assured. Anyone 
criminally responsible for an attempt to undo a Democratic election needs to be held accountable, Garland says. We don't actually know, though, how high up indictments will go and just how far above the law some might try to be. Talk about more of that and more throughout the entire hour of this show. But let's start with what is right in front of us. This primetime hearing that starts tomorrow. I want to get to the former Trump White House communications director. Alyssa Farah Griffin resigned from her post the weeks before January 6th, and she knows the two former Trump aides will be testifying tomorrow. Alyssa, I'm glad to see you here today. A lot is being made of a primetime hearing, right? That's a big deal in and of itself. But about these two witnesses, tell me your, what you think of their ability to testify credibly tomorrow. So I think it was extremely smart of the committee to pair these two witnesses together. So I know Matt Pottinger and Sarah Matthews personally. Sarah Matthews is a close friend. Now, Matt Pottinger was the senior most National Security Council aide on site in the West Wing on the day of January 6th. Robert O'Brien was not in the White House. Now, this is a person with an incredible career, um, credibility across the aisle. He'd served as the Wall Street Journal bureau chief in Beijing, a Marine Corps officer. He went on to be one of the most renowned national security professionals on a bipartisan basis. Then on the other side, you have my friend Sarah Matthews, who is a tried and true Republican. She came, she was hand recruited by Kayleigh McEnany from the Trump campaign to come to the West Wing. She'd worked for Republican leaders on Capitol Hill. You can't so claim her, it's a never Trumper. Exactly. Then. You can't claim it's a never Trumper or a rhino. So they bring in um, credibility from kind of two different arenas. And both were there and are going to be able to tell you what happened in those critical minutes, what the former president was and wasn't willing to say and do to call off the mob, and also shed some light on what those senior advisors around him were willing to say, how far they were willing to push him. So far, we only have the idea of through Mark Meadows. Essentially, that's as far as we seem to get with Cassie Hutchinson's testimony, the idea of Mark Meadows not wanting to go over and talk to him, doesn't want to do anything he kept saying. We will actually get from people essentially the the whys, the idea of the National Guard potentially, why it wasn't deployed sooner. Um, the idea of them being Republicans and not just Republicans, but one recruited by Kelly McEnany, one's the press secretary of the White House as well. I mean, there have been many attacks, nonetheless, on the idea of this being a partisan job, the entire committee. You have filled your own criticism about being outspoken about your beliefs and what happened that day. Are, you, are, are either of these two witnesses vulnerable to those sort of attacks as well? Are they seeing it already? Well, they're certainly going to receive them. Um, I would guess Sarah Matthews will get them worse because, um, as we've seen from Trump world, women who speak out tend to get the worst criticism, the worst smear campaigns, and frankly, threats. Um, I hate to say it because she's my friend and I'm thinking of her and I'm proud of her for coming forward, but it comes with the territory. I mean, Cassidy Hutchinson has to have security for doing her role for her country and speaking out when her superiors like Mark Meadows wouldn't. Um, but listen, they're doing right by the country. These are very credible people with integrity who aren't there for any partisan reason, only to assist the committee in this investigation. Why are we just now hearing from them, do you think? Are these, I mean, Cassidy seemed to be kind of a surprise witness in many respects, and people were caught off guard, a little bit flat-footed that she'd be testifying. Were these two witnesses, as far as you know, at least your friend Sarah, were they in the works all along for this sort of final primetime event? So Sarah's been in touch with the committee for many months. Um, I connected her to Liz Cheney uh, probably more than six months ago, and she resigned on January 6th, as did Pottinger. So she's been working with the committee since kind of the outset. I don't know when the decision was made to put her in this final hearing. Um, my understanding is Pottinger had sat down with the com committee, but I think 
decided to be somebody who might be used in this capacity after hearing the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony and wanting to kind of speak out more forcefully. Um, I should note also, I've mentioned this before, but Matt Pottinger was very close with Mike Pence. Um, He traveled with him anytime he went to Asia. That was kind of his portfolio within the NSC. And both he and Sarah Matthews have stated to the committee that it was when the Pence tweet went out that they really were like, this is enough. I cannot stand by this. Now, you spoke with Sarah Matthews earlier this morning, as recently as that. What is she feeling about testifying? Is she nervous? Is she confident? Is she believing that there's a lot she can contribute and be additive? Yeah, I think she's going in clear-eyed because she already got the criticism that came when she spoke out after January 6th and resigned. So I think she knows what she's walking into, and she feels like it's her duty. I I wish that more people did. Like, it shouldn't be a deputy press secretary who has to be the one to go testify before the committee. It should be the White House chief of staff or the White House counsel. But she's ready for it, but I'm sure the natural nerves are there because— Smear campaigns will begin immediately if they haven't already. Uh, But there are many of us who are there to defend her integrity and Matt Pottinger's, which is unquestionable. What do you think is on these outtakes we're going to hear from tomorrow? I mean, these are, I mean, outtakes, 57 minutes worth from Donald Trump. What are we going to see, do you think? I think you are going to see a lot of staff trying to coach him to say things more forcefully and more directly and to use certain language and him trying not to. I can imagine that he was not wanting to condemn violence. He was not wanting to talk about a transition of power. But by the way, I should note, while this is interesting and this is going to be revealing footage, we still haven't seen the footage of the January 6th video shot in the Rose Garden. Mm. There are other outtakes from that where he said, you know, you're wonderful, you're beautiful people. There's apparently other versions of that that I think might be even more revelatory in terms of how he was feeling on that actual day. And I don't believe the committee's uh, um, gotten those in their possession yet. I wonder why they wouldn't have that. They would have the January 7th instead. Do you have any insight as to why they would have one versus the other? I mean, first of all, we don't know what happened in Helsinki still. So the idea of us (laughs) knowing what's happening on those dates, I get it. And we remember that sort of video he made afterwards where he seemed like he was almost, you know, forced to do so. And I wonder what the outtakes of that might have looked like. But I I wonder, just I'm, I'm back on Sarah Matthews and her testimony in particular, How do you feel and how do you think she's feeling about the fact that it's her and not, say, a Mark Meadows testifying? It's not others who were there. I mean, Kelly McNamee, we've seen videos of her during the actual course of this entire hearing. What what does she make of the fact that it's her in this hot seat, so to speak? I can't speak for her, but I I imagine there's a level of frustration um, at the cowardice of more senior individuals for not speaking out. Um, You know, also doing this means spending tens of thousands of dollars on lawyers, you know, spending time away from your job, dealing with the potential threats, the potential harassment. I mean, she's being brave by stepping forward. um, And it's just it just kind of shows who, you know, the lack of leadership that was there in the final days, that it's it's her and it's 26 year old Cassidy Hutchinson that are speaking out. We're going to see more about exactly what happened. Alyssa, please stand by. Much, much more with our conversation on all of this in just a moment. And our insiders ahead, plus a new allegation that Donald Trump is still actively trying to overturn the 2020 election, as in the word still was just used. Talking more than a year and a half later. I'll tell you why right back. The January 6th committee's primetime hearing turns directly to the commander-in-chief, or the former commander-in-chief. The focus lays not on the witnesses who were in the room where it happened, but on Donald Trump himself. And for anyone who says we need to just move on enough already, well, the former president still appears quite focused on an election that he lost, and that was almost two years ago. 
new evidence from CNN affiliate WISN, which reports that Donald Trump called the top lawmaker in the Wisconsin State Assembly, Republican Robin Voss, wait for it, last week. Here's how Voss describes the former president's request to overturn the state's 2020 election results. He makes his case, which I respect. Um, he would like us to do something different in Wisconsin. I explained that it's not allowed under the Constitution. He has a different opinion. Than he- hmm. Constitution, opinion, mm, details. Alyssa Farah Griffin is just one of the three key insiders that we have. We also are joined by Miles Taylor, former chief of staff to the Homeland Security Secretary under Donald Trump, with great hair as always, by the way. <laughs> I'm making him laugh. Look at you see it right there. Also, John I'm Wood, <laughs> equally great hair, by the way, who in two years ago was a senior investigator for the House Select Committee. He's now running for U.S. Senate as an independent in Missouri. I'm glad you're all here. I've now made him blush. I'll give you a second to wait oh, it out man. for a second, Miles. Look, everyone. I mean, John, you have been somebody who's been on this committee. We're all sort of on the outside looking in. You were on the inside. I, I got to know, with these two witnesses, is there anything to the idea that these were sort of the, the last of them, the blockbuster, or are we reading too much into the fact that it's those two? Well, I wouldn't read too much into the fact that it's those two, because while those two might be the ones that are there live, I think you're going to hear from a range of witnesses. One of the things the committee has done really well is use videotape depositions and interviews and weaving it into the hearing. And so I think while there may just be two people sitting live at the witness table, we're going to hear from a lot of people who worked in the White House for Donald Trump. And I think it's going to be very compelling. The two witnesses that we're going to hear from tomorrow are both extremely credible. I led the staff interviews of both of them, and I can tell you they came across as extremely sincere and credible. So I think they're going to be powerful, but we're going to hear from others. I expect to hear more from people like Pat Cipollone and people who are close to Donald Trump. I wonder in those moments where you were having the initial witnesses and interviews, were there moments that you sort of had the jaw drop or the aha moments? And have we seen those moments played out in the hearings already? Or is there more sort of in reserve? Every hearing so far has had new information. And I think the same is going to be true of this next one. I don't know if there's going to be anything that's quite going to match what we heard from Cassidy Hutchison. Mm-hmm. That was just really jaw dropping. So that's setting the bar really high. But I think we're going to learn new information and in particular, there's been kind of a buildup through these hearings. They haven't gone perfectly chronologically, but they've somewhat gone chronologically in the sense that we've heard about the pressure that the president put on state officials, on the Justice Department, on the vice president, the buildup to January 6th. And now we're going to hear about that critical 187 minutes while the attack was going on before the president finally and somewhat reluctantly, I think, said, go home. Take out the word somewhat. I yeah. think you got that Take right. Miles, now we're in this sort of 187 minutes. This is where Matthew Pottinger comes into play. What do you think he's going to testify about and say? Well, let's just talk about that number. Let's talk about that number for a second, because I've said before, Laura, that I think this is the closest thing to a smoking gun in the whole insurrection. And it's a gun that smoked for 187 minutes. Let me compare it to something. I haven't heard anyone make this comparison. After 9-11, George W. Bush was villainized for waiting seven minutes in a classroom Mm. to go make the phone call to check in after a terrorist attack on the United States. He was reading a book still. Remember that moment? I remember that. You're right. At an elementary school, seven minutes. They even made a film about it, Fahrenheit 9-11, excoriating him for waiting. They ticked off the minutes. Donald Trump waited 26 times that amount of time and was watching the terrorist attack unfold. That's absolutely stunning. So we'll hear about the what in this hearing from Sarah and Matt. 
But also the important thing is the who here. If you were watching a terrorist attack unfold and you were president of the United States and it was a domestic event like we had on January 6th, you could do one of two things. One, you might call your communications professionals and say, immediately put out a statement telling these people to you know, get out of there and condemning this attack. That would have gone to Sarah Matthews. She would have been the one who likely, Alyssa, crafted the statement and probably would have issued the statement. Or you would have called and said to the National Security Advisor, we need to pick up the phone and call the Secretary of Defense or the Capitol Police. We need an armed response of some kind to prevent this from happening. That would have been Matt Pottinger. These two people did not get the call from the president. Instead, in Matt's case, he rushed to the Oval Office to say, what is happening? And they wouldn't let him in. That's when he saw Mark Meadows, apparently, right? And asked the question about whether they're going to have the person. You're nodding, so you must know this for a fact. See, the guy on the committee (laughs) is like, yes, Laura, that's exactly right. I mean, I can't multiply 26 by the 7 like he just did. But I don't have my iPhone with me for a second right now. I was told there would be no math. I know. We're lawyers. We don't do this. But Alyssa, on this very notion and thinking about it, I mean, when when you think about the statement that he would have made, being the president of the United States, his statements were always in tweets, I mean, overwhelmingly. I mean, they, we were aware of how people were hanging on us everywhere. We heard someone testify to that very effect. What would have been the impact had Donald Trump, the former president of the United States, at that time said that to his followers? You know quite well. Yeah, and you, you opened with my tweet that day. I had resigned about a month prior, but where I said, condemn this now for our country. They will only listen to you. And Sarah Matthews has said that then when the Mike Pence tweet went out, that was pouring gasoline on a fire. So not only was he not stopping what we know, you know, saying the words that could have stopped this attack, he actually was making it worse and inciting it in real time. I think that, you know, to Miles' point, you're going to get an assessment of, I think, the national security threats and the threat environment that we knew leading up to it. Matt Pottinger would have had visibility on things like weapons that people were potentially trying to traffic into the Capitol, any sort of different briefings that they were getting on the high side there. But then you'd also have Sarah Matthews, who's going to know what the back and forth looked like between the press office and the Oval Office that day to get him to denounce this attack. And yeah, it went on three hours and he didn't do a thing. And we have some sound, right? I think of Matthews even talking about this very issue to some extent, talking about, well, let's play it, thinking about we thought the president needed to tweet something and immediately... Uh, We thought that the president needed to tweet something and tweet something immediately. And um, I think when Kaylee gave us that order of don't say anything to the media, I told her that I thought the president needed to tweet something. Now, he didn't, obviously. And part of what they tried to convince the American public or persuade last time was connecting the dots, not only of this person had the power, but they were taking some kind of an order from the president of the United States. Does it match and square with you that they were able to accomplish that mission? So at the last hearing, one of the things we heard from one of the witnesses is that the reason that he finally left the Capitol, this is somebody who breached the Capitol and was in the Capitol, one of the rioters, that the reason he finally left was simply because the president asked him to. Why didn't the president do more during the 187 minutes to ask his followers to leave? I think if he had, maybe some of the violence could have been prevented. Well, we'll see, and we'll get to the end to that soon. Stick with everyone. We're coming back to this panel as well. Don't worry. More on what we've learned so far and where the committee's investigation might just go from here. I mean, how much work does the committee have left to accomplish its goal? We're going to unpack that next. The January 6th Select Committee knows how to get attention. 
But the question really is, is it actually changing minds? For her part, the vice chair, Liz Cheney, has spoken consistently to her own party. I think we all have to recognize and understand what it means. We take our oath to defend the United States Constitution, and that oath must mean something. I think we all have to recognize and understand what it means to say those words and what it means that those things happened. We're even more chilling and more threatening than we could have imagined. We have to choose. It's also painful for Republicans to accept because Republicans cannot both be loyal to Donald Trump and loyal to the Constitution. We cannot let America become a nation of conspiracy theories and thug violence. She's facing quite an uphill battle. I mean, look at the polling shows 69% of Republicans believe that Trump bears little to no responsibility for that attack. We're back here with our three key insiders. I mean, when you hear that, the idea, Liz, I see you shaking your head because, I mean, the idea, she keeps, keeps repeating this notion. We have to do it. It's a moral imperative. It's going to be painful to realize the truth. The epiphanies are going to be painful here. Why are these epiphanies so painful? Well, I mean, I I can completely relate to Congresswoman Cheney. I have immediate family members who still think the election was stolen. And even when I say I know Donald Trump, I worked for him. This isn't true. It doesn't break through. So there's a part of you that just wants to shake people and be like, come on. But I will say, I think that these hearings are breaking through. It's always been a dual track for the committee. One is to tee up a case for DOJ and let them decide what they're going to do. But the other is swaying the public. And they have gotten tens of millions of views, far more than the committee anticipated. The testimony has been almost all Republicans, by the way. And I think it's having an impact. Liz Cheney, to her credit... She's still running, and it's smart that she is because it shows she's not going to be intimidated. But even if she loses, she will have made her mark on history, and she'll be part of the change that hopefully comes at some point in the Republican Party. Well, I mean, she began talking about the whole hearings about essentially one day Donald Trump will be gone, but what you've done, I'm paraphrasing here. Look at her poll numbers, though. I mean, she's very, very vulnerable when you think about her race and how her primary is shaping up. I mean, you know, John, you're running for office right now, but I'm, and I, I want to know about that, but I also want to know, was that the dual track purpose of the committee? Was it equal parts, maybe a referral to DOJ, and also the idea of, look, there's a moral imperative here. I need everyone to be on the same page that what happened was wrong. We all get that. Is that part of what the goal was? I think the goal is to make sure the American people understand what happened so it'll never happen again. We need to get back to having a consensus around following the Constitution and protecting our democracy. I'm a Republican. I've been a Republican my whole life. Even though I'm running as an independent for the U.S. Senate in Missouri, I still am a Republican. But the fact is that Donald Trump did not win the election. And part of living in a democracy is you have to accept the results of an election, even if your candidate or even if your party doesn't win. I mean, you can't vote. You can't, you're not entitled to vote for the winner. You're yeah. entitled to vote. But, Miles, I mean, Republicans are paying quite a price. I mean... You are a Republican running as an independent, largely, I'm sure, because you realize the price it's paid for admitting what's the truth. Well, this is also a self-fulfilling prophecy. I I want to take you all the way back to 2016. When Trump was running, I was working under Paul Ryan's leadership when he was Speaker of the House. We were worried about him even rising in the Republican pack because he was going to do immense brand damage to the GOP. Mm. Right. That feels like an incredibly naive understatement because, you know, he's done greater than brand damage to the GOP. It's the entire country. But to Republicans, it's longstanding, sustained damage. And John Wood here is an exemplar of what happens because of that. You've got lifelong Republicans now running as independents, but 
Uh, you know, I know in the last segment we joked about numbers. I, I want to bring some numbers into this, though. It doesn't matter that this hear- these hearings are not winning over the mega MAGA cohort. That was never going to happen. We were never going to dissuade that 69% that believed the election was stolen, uh, that, you know, it was stolen, that it wasn't. Um, what matters is what's happening with independent voters in this country. 50% of Americans now do not consider themselves to be a Democrat or a Republican. 50% consider themselves to be political independents. That's the highest that number has mm. been in recorded history. Those are the people who are the majority makers. That is the pro-democracy coalition in this country. And they are breaking heavily in the direction of thinking this uh, committee uh, has made an impact and Donald Trump should not be president again. That's what matters, the independents. And there, it is moving the needle. And, you know, on that point, I mean... Even those who have been lifelong Republicans. Remember Rusty Bowers, who testified. And, you know, there was the moment he was talking about it. He was very emotional. Mm-hmm. He was talking about the idea that it was antithetical to his oath. He just could not do it. He was a man of faith to be able to, to tell a lie or break it in some way. That same person, he was just formally censored by the Arizona House, um, by the Arizona House. I mean, the Republican Party Executive Committee. Why? Because of what he testified to and what he said. And there was this um, chairman, Chairwoman Kelly Ward, who tweeted put on the screen that he is no longer a Republican in good standing. And we call on Republicans to replace him at the ballot box in the August primary. But I, but I want to be clear about one thing. Rusty Bowers, as incredible as his testimony was, he then did an interview and said if Trump was the nominee, he'd still support him. And what I would note from that is mm. you can't have one foot in and one foot out because the MAGA world, the mega MAGA will savage you if you do. If you go out of step, even if you say, oh, but I'd support him if he's the nominee, they're still going to do this. There's got to be that clean break at some point of Republicans saying enough of this person. And by the way, I would just like to remind you all, If and when Donald Trump announces that he's running, likely next month, I think, other Republicans should run against him and they should be up on a debate stage and say, only one of us lost to Joe Biden and it's you, Donald Trump. Mm. That moment needs to happen. I've got to echo. That's called a sick burn. (laughs) 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 That what you do is one of those, like, by by the way, um, she can do that for a living. I got to say, now is not the, this is going to be really ironic coming for me and I'm going to say it and and bring it on Twitter. Uh, And that is, now is not the time for anonymity, okay? And, and, and I say that as the end. Oh. That's right. Now's the time to Miles slip out of the Twitter remains undefeated. You <laughs> have just called the hornet's nest. Come at me. But, but uh, I can say that because I'm telling you, you know, criticizing him from the shadows, uh, ultimately I wanted to unmask myself and I did. But don't even do that, folks. Go straight to the mics. Go Ooh. straight to the light. Right. We need ex-Trump officials to come live in the light and say who this guy is. Otherwise, it could happen again. He's the odds on favorite to be the Republican nominee for the Republican Party. I can't even believe that's the reality. But he is. And people need to come forward. And and Joe Biden's approvals are in the tanks, just candidly. So it's there is a perfect storm scenario where Donald Trump could be commander in chief in not a lot of time. And we will probably be fleeing the country if that happens. (laughs) But a lot of people are furious with both ends of the spectrum right now. So as you said, Joe Biden's extremely unpopular. But I think a lot of people are really concerned about Donald Trump. They may like his policies. I may agree with a lot of his policies, but they think that he was a danger to our Constitution and to our democracy. And so that's why we're seeing a lot of people who are in that vast group who are in the mainstream, who reject the extremes that they get as a result of our primaries from both the Republican Party and the Democratic primaries. And that's why I'm running for the U.S. Senate as an independent, even though I'm a lifelong common sense conservative Republican. Well, we will see what happens. I mean, Insurrections are hard to compartmentalize. I wonder if 
Congressman Liz Cheney will run as an independent next. I'm just I'm putting it out there. Oh, someone cr- somebody crossed their fingers. I <laughs> look, mine were on the table. I'm objective. Alyssa Farah, Griffin, Miles Taylor, and John Wood, thank you so much. Thank you. Coming up, more on Merrick Garland answering the question, as much as he's willing to answer that question, of course, about a potential Donald Trump prosecution. He's facing, as you know, mounting pressure from some on the left and the select committee to move a little bit faster on his decision. But Benjamin Wittes is making a case of his own when it comes to DOJ's work. And I wonder, will it silence Garland's critics? We'll see. Next. With the January 6th committee wrapping its initial set of hearings, the spotlight now goes on the DOJ's criminal investigation, and that spotlight is only growing stronger. Many critics, and I mean many, have decried what they see as a very slow-paced investigation. They even accuse the DOJ of dragging its feet on indictments, especially when it comes to Donald Trump. Here's more of how the attorney general did push back today. A central tenant of the way in which the Justice Department investigates, and a central tenant of the rule of law, is that we do not do our investigations in public. We have to get this right. No person is above the law in this country. I can't say it any more clearly than that. There is nothing in the principles of prosecution, in any other factors which prevent us from investigating anyone, anyone who is criminally responsible uh, for for uh, uh, an attempt to undo a democratic election. So how should we view this? Is Garland moving too slow or something different? In a new piece, my next guest makes a case in defense of the Justice Department. Lawfare Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes joins me now. Benjamin, welcome. I'm glad you're here. Listen, you've seen and heard all the criticism. Too slow. People probably are adding on to the Mueller probe, I would say, and their lack of patience and what's going on. But do you think that they are moving too slow, that they are dragging their feet, waiting on the committee, as some people believe? I don't. Um, I think they have moved actually remarkably quickly in general, Uh, When you look at the scope and scale of the investigation since January 6, 2021, we've had more than 850 indictments. Uh, A a surprising number of them have been uh, of people who are accused of very violent, very bad offenses. Uh, They have moved up the hierarchy of potential defendants relatively quickly. They're Uh, They've moved up to seditious conspiracy cases, and they are now knocking at the door of the political echelon. And if you had said, if we had been sitting here on January 7th, and you had said, what would an aggressive investigation look like of this? I would have described something exactly like that as the best case scenario for what an investigation might look like. Now, Now, it's, it's true, though, that they've moved up the hierarchy in terms of the charges, but they've been criticized, especially from Andrew Weissman, deputy special prosecutor in the Russia investigation, where he talks about this sort of bottom or bottom up approach. Right. We often hear the colloquial term about you go after the big fish and who's the big fish is the approach of those 800 plus indictments. And they are pretty low level actors compared to, of course, the president of the United States. Is that approach flawed? No, I don't think it is. I, I so look, I agree with Andrew Weissman that. If the Justice Department is not today 
looking at the broad range of activity uh, that Donald Trump engaged in and others engaged in in the wake of the election leading up to January 6th, that would, that would look like it has a, a certain institutional blinders on. But in fact, we know that the Justice Department has executed search warrants against John Eastman, the, uh, one of the people who was uh, helping the president plot the fake electors. That and the, Eastman memo. We the all Eastman that. memo. Mm-hmm. There's been a search warrant executed against Eastman. There's been a search warrant executed against Jeffrey Clark, the uh, Justice Department official who Trump tried to install at the, uh, as the acting attorney general. But these there, were quite recent, and they were after at least testimony about either in the committee. Uh, so, first of all, recent activity is a sign that the investigation is alive and doing its work, right? Uh, if, you'd sh- if you said there's been no recent activity, that's what would bother me. Moreover, the Justice Department, you know, gets the benefit of a lot of different inputs, right? It, it gets the benefit of all the bottoms-up activity that it's engaged in. As they flip defendants, they get cooperation. Uh, as they uh, bring in new defendants, they get, uh, you know, new allegations come in, right? But they also get the benefit of journalism. There's a lot, been a lot of journalism. They get the benefit of the work of the committee. The committee's conducted a 1,000-plus in, uh, uh, interviews. And so... I don't think I think it's a it's a it's not a bug it's a feature that the investigation appears to be assimilating inputs from all over the place. One uh, important point about this this is not like Watergate where you have a relatively discrete fact pattern, right? I don't know how many total defendants there were in Watergate. Watergate by the way took 5 years to prosecute the whole thing. Um This is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people scattered all over the country. Even the activity that the committee is looking at, if you think about it geographically, it involves people all over the place. This is going to take a while. Well, speaking of hundreds and hundreds of people, I mean, I was a line career prosecutor. Everyone keeps talking about Attorney General Merrick Garland, who I know you know well, but... The, at the end of the day, it's the career prosecutors who are going to be building these cases and presenting it to the attorney general in some form or fashion. Um, what do you make of the perception, though, that people have that the attorney general or um, the DOJ more broadly is playing catch up? And I ask this specifically because there were these letters to the committee and the committee wasn't handing over information to DOJ. Yeah. So I so first of all, in a, in a situation in which the committee is doing a top-down investigation, the committee starts with the question, hey, what can we say about political accountability and Donald Trump, right? They get to start with the king. They interview everybody around the king. They interview everybody. around. That's not the way you conduct a criminal investigation, as you know. At the criminal investigation, you do it maybe not from the very bottom up, but you're going to start with the people below, It is not surprising to me at all that the committee gets to some people starting at the top before you get them coming up from the bottom. Um, To me, the question is the following. As you look at the way the investigation progresses, is it moving up? Is there pressure from the cases they are making on the next rung up the ladder? Right now, it seems to me there is a lot they're, they're, it's a very active investigation crossing a lot of different territory, both, uh, both legally and factually. 
And so as long as that's the case, I'm not going to sit here and worry that the subpoena that went out last week didn't go out last month. Well, you know, the committee has the benefit of what they have a public hearing. It's their business in the public. The DOJ is supposed to do their work in private. Thank you for your time, Benjamin Wittes. I appreciate it. Rudy Giuliani, well, he may not be feeling peachy keen tonight about his next trip to Georgia. A judge ordering him to appear before a grand jury there. What it means next. So you just heard Benjamin Wittes urge the American people to be patient as the DOJ's January 6th investigation plays out. But is the DOJ going about his probe the right way? John Wood is back with us, and Elliot Williams is also here. And John, of course, you were formerly a U.S. attorney as well. And, you know, I know you were a deputy um, AG as well, the Justice Department. Both of you very, very well-versed in where we are right now. Do you buy the notion of being patient? I mean, prosecutors know we are supposed to be perfect and have no time to be. They have a lot more time than the average case, right? I think we have to be patient with the Justice Department, but I do think there's an important step that the attorney general could make and that he probably should make now, which is I think inevitably at some point this investigation has to look at people in the immediate inner circle of Donald Trump. Donald Trump very well might run for president of the United States against Joe Biden. That makes this as political as it conceivably can be. If you want to take at least some of the politics out of it, I think the attorney general should appoint a special counsel who can be as free from politics as somebody can be to look into anybody closely associated with Donald Trump. I mean, special counsel, people are having Mueller flashbacks all of a sudden, right? Do they like it or not? Uh, Yeah. No. And, you know, another thing uh, to add to that, John, you know, um, I think the public just has a hunger for more information and something baked into the Justice Department. I was there for six years as deputy assistant attorney general uh, at at the end. The Justice Department just doesn't talk about investigations. And I think that's sort of incompatible with what the world has come to expect right now. Now, certainly there there are places where the Justice Department, by law, can't talk about what they're investigating if something's before the grand jury, but nothing stops the attorney general from saying, hey, look, we're investigating this matter, calm down. Now, I don't know if I want him to do that, but maybe that's part of what's whipping people up a little bit. They just don't know what's going on. Well, the Comey-Clinton fiasco makes people very reluctant to ever say anything with good reason about these very notions. But how about, you talk about inner circle, Rudy Giuliani. I mean, he's now, do you think... (laughs) was that like a, a, a Pavlovian just, response? Just, wow. it's just, it's just, is that a legal analysis? I know. <laughs> there is. You have a more critically I can't top thinking. That, okay, so fine. I'll, pass. I'll take it from here. But no, you've got Rudy Giuliani ordered to testify right now in Georgia. He had the chance to do it in New York. Apparently, he just blew that off and didn't show up. Talking about the inner circle, what do you make of the fact that Giuliani has to testify in a case or investigation involving? The big Georgia phone call, the fake electors, you can go on with the list. And Rudy Giuliani's own testimony, which he gave before, say, legislature in Georgia and did similar things in other states. But in the Georgia legislature, my recollection is he showed a videotape of what supposedly happened at the State Farm Arena. And it was edited in a way that made it extremely misleading and made it look like what he described of suitcases of ballots being brought in when, in fact, no such thing occurred. There was surveillance videotape footage of these boxes, which were secure ballot boxes, videotape of them the entire time. They were never tampered with 
and he misled the people of Georgia and the state legislature. You know, another, oh, sorry, pardon, pardon me, John. Uh, but another thing um, sort of driving the pace in Georgia is that the crime that at least we sort of seem to know is being investigated, conspiracy to commit election fraud, is actually just a simpler crime than the kinds of things we're talking about in the context of January 6th, where you're talking about seditious conspiracy and conspiracy against the United States and so on. These are just complicated crimes. Seditious conspiracy hasn't been charged, I believe, in the United States since 2011. Uh, it's been years since, they, since anyone one's ever tried to break. Which is a good thing, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. That's, you don't want it to happen you know, too often. We, crime, this right? is true. This is true. But but it's just what's happening in Georgia is a little more straightforward. And it's actually not that surprising that they'd be further along and just more out there. Public. It's also, I mean, think about this. As a, If you're talking about politically speaking, I've heard oftentimes people say, you know, you never want to prosecute a former president. It would tear the country apart. The sort of George, uh, Gerald Ford notion of all these things. People don't always buy that notion about it causing division. But It'd be politically comfortable for, say, a Joe Biden if it's not a federal prosecution, right? If it's like, oh, I, I can't do anything about this. My hands are tied. It's the DA in Fulton County. If it were me, maybe something different. But does that make it cleaner for him politically, you think? Well, it makes it easier, but it's not going to make the question go away of whether the federal government's going to do something. So I think whether Merrick Garland ends up bringing charges or doesn't bring charges, either way, it's going to be described as political because it's going to have such monumental political consequences no matter what he decides. So that goes back to my point of why a special counsel may not be the perfect solution, but it's the best one that I can think and of. The worst possible outcome is charging a former president with a, with a crime and having him get acquitted. You want to make sure if you're moving forward with those charges, your case is tight. And I think that's what they're doing. Or maybe the real worst case scenario is knowing someone committed a crime and deciding, mm, yeah. no, thank you. That would be above the law. Special counsel, it won't be Sidney Powell. Okay, we, we all, we're <laughs> no. all that we're Let's there. That we're out. all there. Okay, fine. We're good. No Pavlovian response no. to that. There we go. <laughs> Elliot Williams, John Wood, thank you so much. Hey, thanks for watching. I'll see you tomorrow night as part of CNN's live coverage of the January 6th Select Committee's primetime hearing. That starts at 7 p.m. Eastern. Now, Don Lemon tonight starts right now with, of course, Don Lemon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.